Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. At the Hartford, they understand that there's nothing small in small business. As a small business owner, you're busy. You have a ton of big decisions to make every day. And the last thing you want to do is worry about your small business insurance. With coverage from the Hartford, you never have to. With over 200 years of experience and over 1 million customers, they are specialists in small business. From workman's compensation to professional liability, commercial auto, and more, the Hartford offers a wide range of small business insurance products so you can keep focus on what you love, knowing that they're behind you every step of the way. Learn more at thehartford.com slash small business. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. All right, here we go. Episode 48. I'm John Taffer. This is my No Excuses podcast, and hello. What a week for me, man. Corey's been brutal. So my uh, dog, Winston, yeah, 13-year-old miniature schnauzer, had mm-hmm. a huge mass removed from his body. Oh, geez. Big surgery this week. And it, it was so important to me. We almost lost him that I actually had to postpone an episode of Bar Rescue. So I was shooting in Denver and uh, supposed to do three in Denver. I only wound up doing two, and I had to push that one extra episode back to season seven to be home with my little schnauzer who got out a major, major surgery, removed a huge mass and part of his liver and all that. And it's just incredible, Corey, you know, uh, being on a board of Cleveland Clinic, Nevada and working with Keep Memory Alive, I get to see medical science in action. Right. Yeah. You know, seeing it applied in in veterinary is really just unbelievable. They took a third of his liver, a mass the size of an orange, his spleen and, and another part of some other organs out. He's 13 years old. He's home walking around now. It's just wow. unbelievable uh, um, what can be accomplished today if, if we all have the resources uh, to be able to get it. And, you know, when you think about how unemployment is low and income is going up, you know, hopefully more people have the resources to be able to take care of themselves and their pets and everybody much, much better. But it was an amazing experience to see. And tonight, right now, as a matter of fact, as I'm speaking to you, my only daughter – My only child and my only daughter, Samantha, is being induced to have my very first grandchild. Wow. Which is amazing. So I am leaving you, Corey, in literally five minutes. I'm running to the airplane. I'm getting on a plane, and I'm flying to be with my my little girl, my 30-year-old little girl, to have my first grandchild. And I got to tell you, buddy, it's pretty freaking cool. Oh, congratulations, John. So what I wanted to do, since I don't have a lot of time for interviews and stuff this week, and I hope everybody understands, I'm off to have a grandchild, that, that, that I tasked you, Corey, with putting together my top three clips. Yep. And my number one most downloaded episode is with Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. 
who just did this week's Bar Rescue with me, as a matter of fact. And Dave is a good friend, and he'll be back soon, I'm sure. Our second most uh, uh, and most inspirational podcast was J.R. Martinez, right, who, who is ex-military, who, who went through severe wounds and, and upped himself to incredible levels, certainly our most inspirational download. And then I think our most fun download overall was Jenny McCarthy who's unbelievable, my buddy, who just shot Bar Rescue with me. Those of you who are Bar Rescue fans, Jenny McCarthy just shot Bar Rescue with me. It'll appear in season, at the end of season six. So Corey has put together a very special episode of Taffer's Top 3, most downloaded, most inspirational, and most fun episodes. But before we do it, I have to just ask a quick question of everybody. What do you think of this week's Bar Rescue? Is it fun to see <laughs> Portnoy and Barstool Sports? Uh, in the episode, I'd love to hear your comments about it. And I want to remind everybody that Marriage Rescue premieres June 2nd. And I get a kick out of people saying to me, I'm a professional marriage counselor. And these are the kind of posts I'm getting online, Corey. I'm a professional marriage yeah. counselor. How dare you help somebody with their marriage? You know, in some cases, I'm helping people with their marriages after they failed with a professional counselor. And what's interesting about Marriage Rescue is every one of the couples that I meet and work with in Marriage Rescue has been to a professional counselor. And that's those sessions, for whatever reason, failed. So, so I'm a last ditch, last chance for them. And I can't wait for everybody to see it because it's very different than what anybody saw. Uh, uh, and if you're watching a lot of TV, by the way, Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. On Pluto TV, you can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all for free. No credit card needed, no sign-up. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite shows and hit movies. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Pluto TV is free on all your favorite devices. Just download Pluto TV today. So that's what's going on with Bar Rescue. And that's what's going on with Marriage Rescue. And I'm going to take off in a few minutes to go see my uh, daughter, Samantha. And if anybody wants to post well wishes to Samantha Taffer on, on social media, I would love it. And uh, in the next few days, I'll post a beautiful picture of my grandson. So here we go. My first ever Taffer's Top 3. The most downloaded, the most inspirational, and the most fun podcast we've ever done. Take it away, Corey. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Boy, every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew that was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so that you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas. All right, kicking off Taffer's Top 3, we have a clip from John's interview with Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports. Six years ago, I got to meet David Portnoy. He's the founder of Barstool Sports, and, and, and candidly, he, he really sort of blew me away. And you don't realize how much you blew me away. 
And, and, you know, how much of a model you are for so many people that are trying to get into the media business, Dave. And I want people to know your personal story, not just about Barstool Sports. And I know you started in University of Michigan. And, yep. and, and I believe what because of your sister, you went there, right? Yeah. So my sister was a senior when I was a freshman. I'd visit her when I was high school. And as a high school student's prone to do, you love the place. So I applied to a liberal arts school. Actually got denied. They said, nope, you're not accepted here. For whatever reason, though, they said, we think you'd be a great nurse. And if you want to come to the nursing school, you can't. So I said, I called up my sister Leslie. I said, hey, I've been accepted to the nursing program. I don't really know what this means. I know I don't want to be a nurse. I pass out when I see blood. But if I go there for a semester, can I just transfer where I want to be? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Once you're in the school, you can kind of maneuver around the different, whether it be education, nursing. So I ended up in Michigan and I went to a liberal arts program and did a four year degree there. Wow. So, so, so you left Michigan. What I found really interesting, because I read about you, buddy, was yep. when you got out of college, you had no intention of getting a job. I always knew I wanted to try my own thing. Now, I graduated at a time when the economy was booming. Dot-com was just booming. So I did have a sales job for about three or four years out of college. And I did great. I was a good salesman. Um, and to be honest, it helped with the entrepreneurial side. I always knew I wanted to try my own thing. And when I finally did with Barstool Sports, you know, the, jo- the first job I had, they just put a yellow pages in front of me. I had to sell software. And they didn't give me any tips. They said, go through and just sell to whoever you can. So it was as rudimentary sales as you could ever have. Dialing for dollars, cold calling. It was good. It was good experience. And it helped actually launch Parcel because when I started the company, I was able to sell basically a year's worth of advertising for, for nothing. I was selling basically this image of a gambling newspaper, but it wasn't out yet. We had no product, but it was all the sales background and really just calling everybody and their mother, you know, until I had enough yeses where I had the money that I knew I could at least survive for a year. So you got out of Michigan. You almost went into the furniture business for a minute, right? Yeah. So there was a bunch of different ideas that I that I basically had in my mind for Barstool. I knew I wanted to try something. Um, The three concepts I had was Barstool Sports, which was basically a four to eight page gambling fantasy sports newspaper slash rag. The other one was uh, a used furniture company for college students. Every time the semester ends, basically, all you, you go to any college town, there's all this furniture out on the corner that people are throwing away. So my concept was. Get a huge truck in a warehouse, grab all this furniture for free, store it, and then sell it for pennies on the dollar to all the kids moving in. And they could all find it online. Again, Good it was idea. a dot-com era. So you could go online and look for it. That was one concept. And the third was the scouting concept for uh, basically Division two, Division three athletes. Athletes are students – who wanted to play sports in college but weren't heavily recruited. And coaches, Division Three, who may not have huge budgets to recruit, the school doesn't really care if you win or lose, but the coach still wants to win and the kid still wants to play sports in college. So it's a way to connect college coaches with high school athletes, not Division One powerhouse, but people who just want to play sports in college, kind of like myself, like a Division Three type caliber athlete. Were you a good athlete? Yeah. Uh, I, I was decent. I was pretty good at baseball. Again, I, you know, I, I wasn't D1, but I certainly could have played Division Three or maybe even low Division One baseball. So I, I, I was decent. What'd you play? Uh, baseball. So I played left field in baseball. Uh, I played football a little bit. It hurt my shoulder, but it was primarily baseball. So you could run pretty quick yeah. then, if you were playing. Yeah, I, was, I was a very fast person. Okay, so you formed Barstool Sports. 
Now, now, you and I have something in common. I created Bar HQ, my app, and what I did before I built it is I sold all the advertising to Anheuser-Busch in advance, and then I used their money to build my app, and then I sold it. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the key and why so many things in my industry, uh, the media, you know, it's great to have these ideas and concepts, but if you can't sell it and you're not willing to be the person on the phone, you know, doing the deal – how are you going to survive? So I, I had an advantage over people doing what I was doing in that I really came at it much stronger from the business. Not It wasn't, hey, I want to be a journalist and write funny stories. It was how do I make a business? How do I make this work? And that was the sales. Uh, you know, the newspaper, when I launched it, I was the only employee. And it would say to contact, uh, you know, sales to Joe at Barstool Sports. If you want to contact PR, contact Bill at Barstool Sports. Had all these aliases so people would think we were much bigger than we actually were. So the fact of the matter is being an entrepreneur means you got to knock on doors, make the phone calls. It didn't freaking come easy, did it? No, and I, you know, I'm sure you know this. This is one thing. A lot of people love talking about being an entrepreneur, um, but it, it not everybody wants to do, you know, the heavy lifting that's involved in it. Now, don't get me wrong. I would rather do nothing else. I had no problem waking up. I used to wake up at 5 a.m. every single day, hand out the newspapers at the subway. Uh, I would go home. I would write my articles and stuff like that. And then I'd head back to the subway to hand out the newspapers again. I used to deliver them all myself. It was like a 48-hour paper route where I'd stick them in a van and just drop, drop them off nonstop. It was a bear. I mean, I didn't take a day off for 10 years, but it was the best 10 years. And, and it beat the hell out of when I was working for somebody else before that. Uh, but it's a lot of work. But you got to love it. And I did. So the fact of the matter is it didn't happen overnight. You had to work your butt off to make it happen. And then uh, 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 you started to associate yourself with a number of people around you. And you grew out across the country. So you started cash flowing and then you really invested back into the business. Yeah. So, you know, we started in 2004 and I'd say around 2007, 2008, I was starting to finally say, all right, I may not be rich doing this, but I'm going to be able to carve a living doing something that I enjoy working for myself. And that was the primary goal when I started it. But as Boston started taking off, I said, you know, if I can replicate this in other in other cities, I may really have something. So we started looking for other guys. We found uh Kevin Clancy in New York, Dan, Big Cat, who you obviously know well in Chicago. We found Smitty in Philadelphia. So we started expanding to other cities, trying to replicate the model of what we had here in Boston. Now, these weren't yeah, aliases. Are. These were actually people. <laughs> these you were all coming here. Yeah. Real people. So, real people. So you know, now, full-time salaries. So now, absolutely. Now you got salaries. You got benefits. You got all this stuff to worry about. You're a multi-city operation. At that point, or at what point did you realize that you had a multi-million dollar venture on your hands? Was there ever a moment when you said, holy shit, look at what I've created? Did yeah, that- you know, it was 2010. So we had always only done physical events in Boston, the city of Boston. And I wanted to test. I wanted to see how are we doing outside just Metro Boston. So we wanted to do a uh, tour of local colleges, UMass, URI. We went to Quinnipiac. We went to UNH, New Hampshire. Um, so and I needed a sponsor for it. And all of our sponsors at the time, our advertisers, were for the most part uh, beer companies, liquor companies, and they wouldn't put their name on just doing a party. So I said, well, how can we get, how can we make it so Southern Comfort or Coors Light can advertise or sponsor this tour? 
I decide music because, you know, they all the beer companies will put their name on concerts. So he found a local artist and said, we're doing a concert tour. It was 10, uh, six cities. And when we went to these other schools, they were hanging our signs in their windows. We were supposed to do these concerts at venues, like, like 500 cap bar venues. The Mullen Center at UMass, that's where they play basketball. Yeah. They called me up and they said, hey, Dave, we're getting uh, basically requests for this concert. And we don't know what they're talking about, but we think there's demand for this, for you to move it from a, a bar to the actual arena. And we worked out the finances and all that. We put the tickets on sale. It was just the floor of the arena, which was 4,000 people. And we sold out in about an hour. Uh, <laughs> that that was an eye-opening experience. So that was because, you know, I've had those experiences. Sometimes we don't realize how big our brands are. Like even this podcast, this Sex of This podcast sort of blew me away because it happened so quickly. It's amazing when you have those moments when you realize, wow, this is bigger than I thought. All right, next up we have one of the most inspirational episodes we've had on the podcast, and that's J.R. Martinez. Take a listen. Here I was a kid. My father wasn't in the picture. My father left when I was nine months old. It was just my mother and I. Um, in the States, yeah, I compared myself to my peers and, and kids at school. And sometimes I'd have to wear the same jeans, you know. Yep. I'd wear them on a Monday and I'd have to wear them, you know, split it up. Maybe one, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Monday, Friday or whatever it was and just switch out the shirt. And we didn't have a lot. And I remember going to El Salvador, you know, El Salvador the first time um, at the age of six and seeing the way my family lives there and suddenly what i and what we in this country because we're so spoiled and and to some degree feel a sense of entitlement and to some degree we just completely forget how fortunate we are in this country despite a lot of you know crazy things that you know happen in our country but it still is the united states of america and everyone still is trying to come here from everywhere in the world and it, it allowed me to, John, be grateful for what I had, even though at home, a lot of people would say we were poor and we didn't have a lot. But I was looking at it from a standpoint of, wait a minute, well, we have running water. Yeah. We, you know, we have shelter. We have food wherever we want. We, I can go to school freely, and it's an obligation that I go to school, and I don't have so, to work at the age of six. So, Jr., you're, you're talking about exactly what I was going to ask you about. So, <laughs> as a young boy with a family from El Salvador, when you got out of high school, you went right into the Army. Yes, sir. Did, did growing up with the exposure to, to culture and life in El Salvador is comparison to – because you're a warrior for this country. You're you're one of our greatest warriors, and you're almost more inspired than, I'm guessing, the one who hadn't been exposed to life in El Salvador. So it did make you appreciate where you were more. Yeah, absolutely. And and it actually was contributed to one of the reasons why I joined the military. I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. And like so many, you know, Americans and and people around the world witnessed on that day, the attacks on on our on our country. Um, I was in high school in Georgia, in Dalton, Georgia, small town, carpet capital of the world, man. And um, here I was. Big Mills. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so here I am, a senior in high school witnessing on television. And when that opportunity. So I graduated from high school. My thought process was I was going to go to college and play 
you know, college football. And yeah. it didn't quite work out that way because academics, you know, academics. Yeah. I was the kid that was an athlete and everyone's friend and a class clown and didn't necessarily focus on academics. And it caught up to me. <laughs> and uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you can relate to this. I mean, I mean, I, I had this vision in my mind. This is the way my life is going to work out because these are the examples I see on television. Yeah. Not necessarily examples around me because I didn't really have that many, but this is what I see on television. And when it didn't happen that way, I suddenly was like, well, I'll crumble up the little piece of paper I wrote my goals and plans on and I'll just throw it away because now what am I going to do with my life? And one day the military um, presented itself as an opportunity and it kind of been something that we had discussed a little bit in school. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go check it out. And I went and got some information. And so I decided to join because I was 19 years old. And I felt that that this a country that I was extremely grateful for, a country that had given my mother an opportunity, and then therefore had given me an opportunity was attacked. The way I looked at it, my mother being able to be in this country and work in this country, earn money, was not only able to take care of me, but then with that income, she was able to send money to my grandmother, my aunts and uncles in El Salvador and feed them off of the little bit she made. And so I took that and it wasn't just a threat to me directly. It was now a threat to my whole family. Mm. So there was something a little bit more deeper for me in comparison to, you know, the next person in basic training and the line. You know, yeah. I had a deeper connection to, to some degree because yeah. some people have obviously military families and traditions yeah. and some people yeah. feel that passionate as well. Of course, 9-11 will make anybody feel that passionate. But um, it definitely sense, did build my a, fire. You, yeah, you had less of a sense of entitlement. Right. I did. And, and a greater and, sense of obligation. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and so what, but, but, you know, here I was still 19 years old and to some degree, very naive and, uh, very, uh, you know, I, I tell people I raised my right hand, like so many service members understanding that war was a possibility, especially during that time. Yeah. But I never thought it would be my reality. Interestingly enough, mm. when you think about that, like, how do you, how do you join during a time of war, understanding that you could go to war, but yet not truly ever, think that you're going to go to right. war it won't happen to you it, i'm 19 right. i mean I, nothing's gonna happen to me like and know, that it would become oh, such, a, such a lasting part of your life because you still live it every day in a sense so, absolutely i do so it's the center of your life and the work that you do and you know what's amazing uh, uh, to me about you jr is that you know when you went into the military you were a man of purpose yes, you had sir. a purpose for your life you had a purpose for our country you had an obligation Yes, sir. And I want to talk about what happened to you in the Army in a minute. But you're still a big man of purpose and obligation. Those are big yes, words to you, aren't they? Yes, sir, they are. Yeah. I mean, when people ask me, I have a, a, a young, you know, seven. she's going to be seven-year-old um, daughter. And when people ask, ask me the question of, you know, what do I want her to take away? And obviously, there's a lot of things. It's not just sure. one thing, you know. But yeah. um, I want her to, you know, to to – to embody service. I want her to remember her father as someone who served till the day that until that day comes. And I want her to say that he lived with purpose every single day. And he may not, not have known exactly what the direction he was going in, but he had a purpose of going down a path, a direction to find that next thing, because that's what the way he lived his life. And that's 
ultimately what has led me to this moment of being here with you. You know what I mean? Um, I'd add a word honor in there too somewhere. Uh, JR yes, as absolutely. Well, not just yes, purpose. Sir. Okay, so you get so you're in the army, right? You, you go to training in, in uh, uh, Fort Benning, right? Yes, sir. And then you deployed, right I, from right from training. Yeah. Well, I went. I mean, it feels that way. I mean, I got to. I joined in September of 2002. By the way, I got in. Can I interrupt for a second? You sure. and I have two things in common that are very powerful things in our lives. What's My that? dad died when I was two. Oh, wow. So, so I also lost my father in a different way than you did. But I also had a sister who passed at birth. Oh, wow. And you wow. and I both share those two things. And, and, and certainly, you know, losing our father at a young age was a very powerful part of who we are today. Absolutely. But I just wanted to share that with you. I'm sorry to interrupt your story, but I want no, to No, I want no, to no. I mean, it, you know, it's it's – you know, there's a lot of things that don't make sense in the moment, you know, and, you know, you, you, you have to stick with it. You have to stick with it because you have to trust and believe that the answer eventually comes over the course of time. And in many ways, it comes when you're not really seeking the answer, where you're not really, you know, paying attention to some degree. You're just kind of outliving your life. Um, it, it'll present itself. And and, you know, to touch on my sister, you know. Here's, here's, you know, I have two sisters. I still tell people I have two sisters. Um, you know, she was the middle child, um, three years older than I am. And well, I still, I still speak in a sense of like, she's here with me. But what's interesting, John, is I never met her is that I never met her because she was born in El Salvador. I never met her. I was three years old when she passed away from an illness that she was born with. So she was six. Mm. She passed away. Never met, met her. I'm sure I spoke to her on the phone at some point. But I remember going to El Salvador when I was nine years old and my mother taking me to her gravesite. And for some odd reason, I was overwhelmed with this emotion. And I, I, I was just I was crying and crying as if I had lost my best friend. It didn't make sense to me nor to the family. We come back home and I still with this curiosity. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 19 years old, 10 years later, I'm in the Humvee. I'm literally burning alive. I'm having all of these images and thoughts in my mind that I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My life is going to end in this way. All the things I wanted to do, I'll never get to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, and also in between, I'm, I'm screaming and yelling. Also in between, I'm gasping for air because I, had, I was inhaling the smoke from the fire, which is doing a lot of damage. And my sister appears to me. My sister appears to me, and she tells me that I'm going to be okay. Now, did she appear to you as a six-year-old? Did she appear to she you? She appeared to me in the only photo that I've ever seen her in that my mother has. And that's it. Because that's way. the only right. photo I've ever seen of her. And, and I mean, wow. a, a tenth of a second later, it felt like I was pulled out of that Humvee. And so I always tell people, it's like, I believe that my sister is my guardian angel. I believe that she's looking after me. She's looking after my, my other sister and my mother. I believe she's taking care of us. And so, you know, that was something that in a lot of ways, I mean, not having a father as well. I mean, that was that was incredibly, you know, difficult because, of course, you know, but it toughed you up, too, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I'm finally in a place at the age of 35 years old. I'm finally in a place where I'm starting to somewhat fully kind of create my identity and understand my identity. You know, here I was as a young man with the key or the you as well with the 
crucial component of, of, of your childhood not being present, your father. I grew up as a, as a teenager wanting to find out who he is, wanting to meet him, wanting to know this, wanting to have this family around me that I knew I had. I just couldn't – I didn't have access to him as frequently. Um, wanting all of that, wanting its purpose. I needed a purpose. I wanted I, – I, I strive for that. So here I am now suddenly in the military, and I'm getting a taste of that. Family, you know, you, right. you, you, you hear about family. that bond yep. within the military. I had purpose, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I was starting to create an identity for myself, and then it was taken away from me. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger, host of the not-so-creatively titled Jordan Harbinger Show. We dig into the superpowers of the world's most interesting thinkers, and then we deliver them to you right into your ears. It's more than just a way to get inspired, and I get it. We're not all superheroes. That's why we give you their blueprint and include worksheets for every episode, as well as answer your listener questions so you can live what you listen. Listen free to the Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. Last and definitely not least, we have a clip from John's interview with Jenny McCarthy. Hi, Jenny. Oh, boy, I love talking to Hi, you. Jenny. <laughs> uh, I don't think uh, uh, my listeners know that, that we're buddies. And I've done your show a few times, and, and uh, uh, we've gotten to know each other pretty well the past few years. We have. There's definitely a connection that I don't really usually have with, uh, you know, with a number of guests, but not like you. You're one of a kind. Like, I'm A, truly a fan. I respect uh, the hell out of you. And then uh, you're exactly thanks. who you are. And I I, mean, I think that's what I appreciate about you. Uh, well, let me tell you what my little secret is. Years ago, I read that you and Dottie watch Bar Rescue on Sunday morning. You guys hang out in bed together, and it's like a lazy day. And that was like one of totally. your secrets that you put in a magazine years ago. I want to tell you my secret. I listened to your serious <laughs> show with my wife, Nicole literally almost every episode all the time and i find you captivating i do and it isn't only because i like you jenny you have this ability to expose yourself in ways that that i really have a hard time doing honestly and when i look over your career and everything that you've done right down back to belly laughs right baby laughs and yeah. those early books moving into you know the truth about sex lies romance oh, love lust and faking it and then you moving into the health space exposing yourself i'm just going to give you a little snapshot the carl's jr commercial sure. was one of my favorite moments of yours of all time <laughs> then then i look at you going in from carl's jr commercials with some pretty hot stuff into Teach to talk, uh, uh, unbelievable, charitable, uh, helping autism, of course. You've had an – I don't know how you do it. Uh, You're so busy with with the philanthropic things that you do. And then I look at your TV work and then your view work. And then I look at you and Donnie. And, Jenny, you have this innate ability to open yourself up. And I've got to ask you, when you were really young – were you always this way? Did you always have this innate confidence to let everybody in? That's a really good question, John, that I think no one's ever asked me in this business. Um, when I was younger, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, kind of strict, went to an all-girl Catholic school. So the answer would be no. I had to very much uh, pretend to be good. And not that I wasn't good, but 
I, I couldn't let any wild side out until I went to college. And I think that that's what kind of the flip happened. And I got to be myself. I got to discover who I was. And I really enjoyed being authentic. After having so many years of having to be this perfect, good girl that went to church every Sunday, I got to college and just figure out who I was. And by the time I went to Hollywood, um, I, I really enjoyed who I was. I know a lot of people go to Hollywood and they want to lose themselves in characters. They want to be somebody they're not. I really like being myself. It shows. <laughs> it it shows. It. So, so when but, Singled Out came out, I, I, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be the goofy side of me. And that's what I stay true to with the books and I think everything else. So I think we share something, and that's authenticity. You really are yourself in everything that you do. I never see you be anything than you. And it's yeah, fascinating I I, how I true never to yourself you are. What, Jen? I said I was, I said I was never good at acting, so I have to be me. Yeah, me neither. Acting is really hard. So when you were in college, what were your majors? What did you take? I originally went, you'll get a kick out of this, I originally uh, was signed up for special education, ironically. I must have felt an inner calling, but on my first uh, week of classes, I was forced to take public speaking, and I had a horrific, and I mean debilitating, case of um, anxiety to stand up in front of the class and speak, and I uh, threw up, I I was, I fainted. I went to my, um, you know, the person in charge in the school and just said, listen, I can't take this class. I, I have debilitating fear of public speaking. I just can't do it. My mom got me out of all of my public speaking things I had to do in high school. She wrote letters. She said, I just can't stand in front of the class. She's too scared. And I switched my neighbor to nursing because that didn't have public speaking attached to it. <laughs> so it is kind of ironic that my, my career, my life, personal life, led to special ed and nursing uh, with my own son. And I had to conquer my fear. If I wanted to, you know, fulfill this kind of dream in Hollywood, I had to dive into auditions. And it was some of the hardest things I had to do. So if you were 16 years old and I said to you, Jenny, close your eyes, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have said? I probably would have said exactly what I'm doing right now. I would have said I want to be a television host. Um, I want to be kind of funny but truth-telling in any capacity. And so, uh, ironically, when I was younger, I have, I have audio tapes of me hosting my own radio show. I've got hours and hours and hours of me hosting my radio show when I was seven, eight, and nine. And then I've got videos of me hosting. So I was pretty close. So you were a ham when you were a kid. <laughs> I was a ham with my with my friends. You know, like I didn't let too many people see the goofy side until I was much older. But I was definitely, um, I definitely had a goofy side to me. I liked making people laugh. Were your parents more reserved? Very reserved. Very. Uh, they're sweet, but you know, my dad's Vietnam vet. My mm -hmm. mom, um, stay at home, hardworking. Catholic, very Catholic. She's like Mother Teresa, Mrs. Cunningham. And they're you know, proud of their four girls. My dad worked three jobs, put us through Catholic school, so I didn't want to be a disappointment or get into trouble. So I was kind of more reserved in front of them. 
And then, uh, like I said, when I got to college, I uh, had fun with, with following the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, when you were leaving college, had you decided I'm going to Hollywood early when you were in college, or this was something that dawned later? Or did you always know you were going to do that? I always had this dream to go there, but it was, you know, it was laughed at when I said it. It was like, oh, I, I grew up so um, lower middle class. It, those dreams were impossible. So it was more like your butt to college. When I went to school, I only lasted about two years before the police came knocking on my dorm room to arrest me. I was bouncing checks for food at that point. I was writing out $2 checks for Chinese food, and I bounced about 35 of them. Um, I was also, here's my entrepreneurial side, I also was selling fake VIP parking passes to freshmen for 50 bucks, and I made about $3,000, <laughs> but I had no way of paying for school, so I was literally living off of bouncing checks and selling these passes, and when the police came, my roommate said, the police are here to rescue, and I opened up my bedroom window, jumped out got my car and I never went back to college. So when I drove home, I went, Mom, I need to come move back in. And I thought, you know, what the hell? I got nothing to lose. Why don't I give it a shot now? The real dream. Wow. So so you went out there. It's interesting to both get away from where you were and to go to what you wanted, sort of both at the same time. Exactly. It was kind of a it was kind of nutty how it all worked out. And then, you know, what do the girls do? I'm on the south side of Chicago. I've got no money. I'm in debt now. And I'm living in my mom's, you know, my old bedroom. So I literally had took a Polaroid camera, and I took 60 selfies of myself with a Polaroid. I looked in the yellow pages, and I looked up modeling and commercial agencies, and I wrote to all of them, put my Polaroid inside, mailed them, and I waited. And I got one phone call out of all of them that said, come on down to downtown Chicago for an interview. I took the bus down there and she said, um, I brought you here to tell you that you will never be a model and you can just be a bartender. Wow. <laughs> Which was incredibly disheartening and I left. But did that motivate you to I try hard? Up. Hell yes. It's so much so, I still remember her name and I uh, also sent her my first cover of Rolling Stone autograph. Um. <laughs> I have the same story. When, when I put together my TV show, I went to a friend of mine who used to run Paramount Television. Uh, I don't want to say his name, but I'll never forget it either. And he looked at me and says, John, you will never freaking be on TV. You're too old. You're not good looking enough. It'll never happen. And when that happened to me, it became a vendetta. I was going to make it happen. So it had the same effect exactly. upon you. Wow. Yeah why we need that we need some type of motivation in our lives but that's if so many people have been motivated by those people that say no and we have turned it into success then anyone that has been turned down should know that it's not true what they say you decide your path it's true i heard a great quote the other day the naysayers should move out of the way so the yaysayers can get it done you know what i mean God, I love that so much. <laughs> That's you and I. Somebody well, I else would have taken that yeah. no as a no. But, you know, it comes back to that self-confidence. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. 
Thanks for listening to my first ever Paffer's Top 3. I'll talk to you all next week. Take care.